This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. If you're out there, there's a pass in here. You can in here and just lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during an execution, it had an impression on them that maybe was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until I get back to it. <laughs> Seven months later, I get it back to one of the one of the problems we ran into is you had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee. Pretty quick they'd have to plan in there to, to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome back, folks, to another episode of the Behind Gray Walls podcast, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who worked and resided here. My name's Anthony, and I am in the studio, in the trenches, in the J. Curtis Oral Weapons Museum with Samuel. Hey, Samuel. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Good. Is it good to be back in the trench again? Oh my gosh. It feels so good to be in the seat and uh, telling the story. I have been waiting for several weeks. I've been crazy busy. We're also, of course, on the line with Sky down in Texas. What's up, Sky? I wish I was in the trench. I want to be back in the trench. I have such I have such a fondness, a little affinity for that little space under that trench, even when people come through and the the gun is squeaking above and uh, I miss it. I am in, you know, just in my closet instead, which is not nearly as exciting. Yeah. You might hear some of that in the background. There are a couple people here in this in this museum in the exhibit, so you might hear people squeaking the gun or uh, taking steps or screaming and yelling if a whole crowd of kids come running in. So. And if I have a whole crowd of kids running into my closet, we have problems. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, nice. But anyway, are you starting or am I starting? I think uh, I'll be starting today. I think you started okay. last week with that very uh, disgusting episode with Charlie. Uh, yeah, the I take forgot worms. about that. <laughs> You're still thinking okay, about that? Okay, sorry about that. All, all 18 feet of the tapeworms. <laughs> wow. Gross. That's terrible. That's three of me stacked on top of each other. No, I don't. And it's inside your, that's, I don't like it. Ugh. I hate it. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, Anthony, I think you are starting us off this week. All right. Yeah. And I have a story I've been wanting to tell for years and... Honestly, this took me forever, and I still feel like if I did this episode next week, I would still be writing it. So this is my best attempt at capturing the story of William Denard, number 3821. So my sources today are his prison file from the Idaho State Archives, the Idaho Daily Statesman digitized newspaper provided by the Boise Public Library on NewsBank, newspapers.com, an Archives West summary of the history of the Deer Lodge, Montana Penitentiary, Library of Congress Chronicling America, City of Cando, North Dakota's website, and a history of the federal prison in Springfield, Missouri. I had a plethora of articles and about 100 pages of research, and that was me being picky with what I picked up as well. William Denard went by many aliases throughout his life, 
in our prison index. He's actually listed first as William Mahan, and his Idaho prison file includes several other aliases, including Bill Mahan, W.S. Grant, William Morrell, and Jack Mahone. William Denard's criminal career was well documented in newspapers around the country and shared in detective magazines and even a book release in 2021. I first heard about William when I visited Alcatraz in 2018 and heard a story from a park ranger named Tom Ryan who told a story about two prisoners who met while serving time in the Idaho State Penitentiary. So, of course, you know, my ears perked up and unfortunately I was too late to pull out my camera and start recording the story, but I got all the stories he told after that. And so those park rangers are amazing storytellers. So. If you're interested in hearing more about Alcatraz, I'm going to say it repeatedly throughout my section of this episode. Check out our School Pigeon Saturday this weekend. So, William John Denard was born on February 13, 1902, in Cando, North Dakota, to Samuel James and Mary Louise Denard. Cando is in northeastern North Dakota, close to the Canadian border, and is uh, proclaimed on the city's website as, quote, the duck capital of North Dakota, end quote. So that's for you you trivia fans out there. (laughs) William was the second of five children, and the family moved to southern Saskatchewan, Canada in 1910 to farm. In later prison files, William noted that he had a third grade education, which might be why he dropped out of formal schooling around that time to help the family with the farm. His father passed away in 1914 when William was around 12 years old. William would note in a letter to the parole board that he worked for a man as a blacksmith up in Canada, and he had family in Lethbridge, a city in Alberta, Canada. There are several redacted files in his prison file that appear to imply that he was a suspect in many illegal activities in the 1920s, including breaking the Canadian Temperance Act, which was prohibition in Canada. And uh, we've discussed the rise of organized crime in relation to prohibition in several previous episodes. Uh, But this may have resulted in his hop back over the border into the United States repeatedly. So he was constantly shuffling between northern bordering states in the United States and southern bordering cities in Canada. So the first official account of William entering the criminal world began on November 20th, 1923, when Jack Schuster of Glentana, Montana, discovered his Ford sedan missing from his garage. Glentana is in northeast Montana, just south of the Canadian border. Automobile thefts were common, and just like today, the stolen vehicles could be driven to nearby cities where a fence would actually buy the stolen vehicle for cheap and then resell them. Uh, So like a middleman. William and a partner, simply known as Marshall, stole the vehicle and headed west to Shelby, Montana, which today is more than a four and a half hour drive. William arrived in Shelby alone in the vehicle and asked the chief of police where he might find a garage to park the vehicle. It's unclear if William knew that he was speaking to the the police chief when he asked, but uh, Chief Shelp Aslip literally got into the stolen vehicle to guide William to the garage. The chief asked William several questions during the ride and uh, became a little suspicious about William in the vehicle, enough so that he actually put William under arrest. It's really bad luck if he didn't know. Yeah, yeah. You're you're going (laughs) to see each caper gets a little bit better and just starts to figure things out. 
Chief Aslip drove William back east to a town an hour south of Glentana called Glasgow. There, William was brought before the judge for the crime of grand larceny. He pled guilty and was sentenced to from two to four years in the penitentiary in Deer Lodge, Montana, six days after the car was stolen from Mr. Schuster's garage. Montana newspapers applauded the speed of the trial and conviction. He's going by William Mahan. Mahan's case was disposed of in record time and was an example of the efficiency of the courts in Valley County, end quote. William arrived at the prison a week later. His partner, simply known as Marshall, was never found. So we actually have his intake in his prison file in the Idaho State Penitentiary. And so uh, his intake at the Deer Lodge, Montana prison was his name, Bill Mahan, number 7688, received December 2nd, 1923, age 20, which uh, we know that this was incorrect, as he would have been 21, nearing his 22nd birthday the following February. Born in Kando, North Dakota, his occupation was blacksmith. His complexion was medium. He was 5 feet 10 and an eighth inch tall. He weighed 163 pounds. He was convicted of grand larceny and sentenced on November 26, 1923, to a term of two to four years committed his crime in Glentana in Valley County. He had no previous convictions. He had been employed in Glentana, Montana, since 1922 by a man named William Lee Hoof. I love that. He was single. His parents were listed as dead. His health was listed as good. He pled guilty, and his sentence was fixed by the court. And under the warden's remarks, his intake states that mail, yes, as in like receiving and giving pieces of postage mail, shoes, size eight, eyes brown, hair brown, teeth good, features regular, tobacco, yes, read, yes, write, yes, religion, Catholic, service, no, a small rectangular scar at two inches left of left corner of mouth. The date of the expiration of his sentence was set for December 2nd, 1927. Deer Lodge is in western Montana near the Idaho border north of Butte, and we will absolutely cover the Deer Lodge prison's history in a future episode with a specialist from that site, and I encourage everyone in the area to visit the old Montana prison and auto museum in Deer Lodge. They close this year on December 18th for the winter and will reopen March 1st, 2024. They also have a raffle for a car. So while I was digging through this, of course, I I bought three tickets for the raffle to win a Corvette. So um, unfortunately, (laughs) unfortunately, if you're listening to this episode, it's already closed and hopefully I'm driving a new Corvette. (laughs) I'll keep my fingers crossed for you, Anthony. Thank you. (laughs) Also, definitely go to Deer Lodge. It is so cool i i actually really want to go back again because it's been several years but it's so cool definitely go i actually have not been i need to take that trip and go so you should it's 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 so unlike ours but it's so interesting to see the difference just even in how it how you know two states right next to each other operated so differently and again i think i've said this before on the podcast it makes our what happens at our prison look tame the things that went on at montana deer lodge some of it is absolutely wild so definitely worth a visit definitely and you know just a brief history the prison opened a few months before the idaho territorial prison deer lodge opened on july 2nd 1871 and throughout its history like the old pen here in idaho it suffered overcrowding and poor conditions 
It closed in 1979, six years after our prison closed. And there are some fascinating stories about the prison's history and some of the characters like Paul Turkey Pete Eitner, who was serving a life sentence when William was serving his time. And Turkey Pete was tending the prison turkeys and apparently lost grasp with reality and thought that he was running the prison. So much so that fellow prisoners kind of humored him and would write checks to him, you know, Warden Turkey Pete, uh, to pay the, the, the prison's bills. So hopefully we will have a specialist on that prison's history tell more of that story in a future podcast. William, a first-timer and in his early 20s, was paroled within a year of arriving, so he did not serve his full term. I can only suspect that the prison may have done more harm than good in the young man's life, providing him training in the world of crime and a new network of similar-minded individuals. A newspaper article in the 1960s attached this quote to William, quote, only suckers work their heads off for a buck. I'm taking the easy routes, end quote. William most likely returned to Saskatchewan where he continued embarking on a life of crime. He was suspected of stealing grain in Vidora, a town in the province of Saskatchewan, Canada, around 1925. Soon after, on November 1st, 1926, a safe in Robesart, Saskatchewan, was removed from the office of a wheat paymaster named A. Skange. The safe was taken to the edge of town where the thieves, quote, used a heavy sledge to wreck the door and combination lock. Cold chisels were used and the door pried open. The safe was left in the field and when found contained a few papers, all cash and securities having disappeared, end quote. So still, it's it's like very roughly done. They they removed this safe from this building. They have to take it to the field, and they're just giving it all they have to finally bust in. Um, they actually took off, though, with $5,000 in cash and $3,000 in securities. And police suspected that the thieves came across the border from Montana and made their return to the United States during the night. William was actually arrested as a suspect but let off due to a lack of evidence. Yeggs, as safe blowers were called, were making their way across Canada and busting into safes in other harvesting banks and jewelry stores around this time. Police were, quote, keeping a close watch for suspects, and the city police in Calgary are checking up strange characters, end quote. So William's reputation it may have been uh, driven him to cross back into the United States sometime in late 1926 or early 1927. He began to get more ambitious with his robberies. William partnered with an unwitting man named Tom Conway. According to Tom, William frequented Tom's restaurant in Spokane, Washington, but business wasn't going well, and the restaurant was going under. William told Tom that he knew a way that they could make a quick score and Tom could get back on his feet. Tom agreed, not knowing what would come next. The two traveled from Spokane to Seattle, where William stole a car and swapped the license plate numbers with that of another vehicle. They then traveled to the outskirts of Oakville, Washington. Several townspeople noticed the duo, who left a milk bottle stopper and a first aid kit with some old blood-stained gauze at their temporary camp. On January 31, 1927, they entered the Oakville State Bank unmasked. The two had been casing the bank and waiting until only the cashier, a man named A.W. Jensen, was present. 
Quote, the two men parked their car, a Hudson sedan, just across the street from the bank, walked leisurely over to the building, and entered. Forcing Jensen to hold up his hands and covering him with their revolvers, the men forced the cashier into the vault and closed the door. Then they rapidly scooped up the money and securities into a bag, end quote. As they were about to walk out the door, a clerk named Liana Lemon, which is, that's the coolest name, I have to say. That's a great name. Liana Lemon. Oh, man. Um, Liana walked into the bank from her lunch break, and they uh, pointed their revolvers at her and demanded that she stand and face the corner. One of the thieves ran out, got into the getaway car, and started the vehicle while the other held her captive against the wall. He then ran out, and the duo took off with $5,000 in cash and another $5,000 in school warrants and negotiable securities. They heard the bank's alarm system go off as they drove out of town. A posse of locals and militiamen were on their tracks. They attempted to take a side road, this little dirt road, to get onto the freeway, but it was raining, and their giant sedan got stuck in the mud up to the axle. Oof. They witnessed the posse come to the dirt road that they had turned off on and analyze the tracks. The posse was convinced that they were old and continued down the road. So they just barely narrowly missed getting caught right there by this posse. So while most of the townspeople were actually out of the town looking for these these thieves in this big sedan, William walked right back into town with prime pickings on any car he wanted. And so he actually stole this nice light blue Willie's night touring car belonging to a gentleman that lived at the apartments uh, near the camp where the duo had stayed the night before. So he had turned to the pull off Beck and Tom from the sedan stuck in the mud and the two took off in a brand new car with all of the money in their pockets. (laughs) So William splits off from Tom with good reason. Tom drove to Olympia, Washington. He cleaned himself up with a new set of clothes and a shave and a haircut so he wouldn't be recognized. And then he parked the stolen vehicle at a local garage and requested to rent another vehicle. When Tom pulled out his bill roll, which was, quote, big enough to choke an ox, end quote, (laughs) the garage man's suspicions were alerted. Where did this young man get this much money and why would he want to rent a different car if he had this perfectly good touring car? The garage man alerted police, and Tom was quickly arrested. He had $2,000 in currency of the $5,000 stolen on him. Within minutes of interrogation, Tom told police where the $5,000 in securities were hidden in a cache six miles west of Oakville. He led authorities through streams and into a swampy wood to uncover the sack containing the securities and led them to the sedan that was still stuck in the mud. He told authorities that his partner was an ex-convict from Montana, but refused to give William's name. Tom was convicted for the armed robbery and sentenced to five years in prison at Walla Walla. William Denard remained free. He headed to Butte, Montana, where on April 16th, he traded in a car for $600 cash and purchased a new Hudson automobile under the name William Morris. He told the salesman that he was making a property deal in Chicago and would return to pay off the remainder of the car. Tom Collins wouldn't be the only victim in William's path. In April, 20-year-old Nora Bergman, a waitress, was arrested at her home. She was accused of aiding and abetting Tom in the holdup. It was thought that she was William's girlfriend during this whole caper. 
Newspapers revealed that the only name for the fugitive bank robber that authorities knew was Bill. So William, Bill, but they don't know anything else. He's an ex-con from Montana, and his name is Bill. Nora pled not guilty and paid her $1,000 bail, and authorities did not have evidence to convict her. And She later actually sued the police department for $55,000, <laughs> stating that her experience, quote, was humiliating, and that when she was taken to the Spokane jail by the police, she was stripped of all her clothing by a woman matron. She was later taken to Montesino and Portland, where she declares she was further humiliated by being jailed with objectionable characters, end quote. I couldn't find anything about the result of her suing the police. So hmm. that went to, you know, civil court. Now, back to William Denard. He obviously wouldn't remain free for long, and I can't positively connect him, but I suspect he robbed a bank in East Helena, Montana on April 9th, 1927. The suspects in that robbery were wearing gauze over their faces to hide their identities. In early June 1927, William teamed up with two new companions, including a former convict of the Nevada State Penitentiary, Tom Searle. The trio had a big score in mind, the Rathdrum State Bank. Knowing the vault might be difficult to access, the trio camped three and a half miles north of town and began working to create nitroglycerin with over 200 sticks of dynamite. Authorities who later found the camp noted, quote, In boiling the dynamite, the bandits placed it in a 10-gallon can over a fire. The sticks were cut up in little pieces and placed in a cheesecloth bag in boiling water almost similar to making coffee. This system brings the nitroglycerin to the surface of the water, where it is skimmed off and put into bottles. It is a mighty dangerous process. The least jar could have exploded the nitro. This leads us to believe that the bandits are professionals at the game. End quote. <laughs> On June 3rd, 1927, the Coeur d'Alene Evening Press headline posted, Robbers Loot Rathdrum State Bank. Two men entered the Rathdrum State Bank unmasked shortly after 1 o'clock that day, holding revolvers. A third man stood outside near their getaway vehicle, a Hudson coach with Washington plates. When the two men entered the bank, a Methodist pastor named C.B. Madsen was being served by the two bank cashiers on duty. With revolvers in their faces, the three were forced into the vault. The two thieves then looted $8,000 in cash and eighty dollars to $90,000 in securities. It was the largest bank robbery in the history of the state of Idaho. The employees and the reverend were locked in the vault as the trio made their escape. They darted out of the bank and escaped in the getaway car. Fortunately, a Spokane man visiting Rathdrum noted the car and took down the Washington plate number, 135559. The vehicle left town heading east. 20 minutes later, the cashier's daughter entered the bank and freed the three locked in the vault. The police were alerted and quickly blocked off all roads leading out of Rathdrum. A local pilot took off to look for vehicles suspiciously parked off-road. Carloads of officers armed with Winchesters and sawed-off shotguns dotted the highways, and locals began patrolling the region looking for any suspicious characters. One of the cashiers told a journalist, quote, Though apparently nervous, the one man I was able to see before I was told to face the wall was as polite about it as I suppose a bandit could be. He wore a beard. Whether false or not, I do not know, end quote. <laughs> So wearing this kind of fake, you know, mustache beard was fairly common, a tool that William would, would use throughout his career. 
The thieves crossed the border into Montana by abandoning their vehicle and hopping a train after a series of close calls with police. They held out in Butte, Montana with over $100,000 in securities, gold, silver, and cash in their vehicle. William made the mistake this time. He began selling $20 gold coins at a discounted rate. That's a little suspicious. You know, hey, here's a $20 gold coin. I'll sell it to you for $15. Like, what? why? What's going on here? When he was arrested, it was actually discovered he had $1,650 in these gold coins in his pocket. So it's it makes sense that he's trying to convert them. So when police were tipped off about the deal going on, they began patrolling the streets of Butte, Montana, looking for suspicious characters. William and Tom were on the street, probably trying to sell the gold coins to anyone passing by. Officers tailed them, and when William and Tom got back into their vehicle, the police made their rush to make their arrest. As they approached the vehicle, an officer saw William reaching for his revolver. The officer hit William's arm and pulled the weapon out of his holster. The car was driven to the police station, and Tom and William were put under arrest. As they drove to the station, William attempted to toss a piece of paper out the window that had the address of the house that they were staying at. Police picked it up and knew where the stash house was. The car was searched, and a large bundle of Rathdrum state bonds were discovered in the trunk. A detective was sent to the apartment to investigate. While he was in the living room, he heard a man come to the door and open it. As soon as he opened the door and spotted the detective, the third robber took off. The officer told him to stop, then fired at the fleeing man's feet. This was followed by two more shots as the man ran down two flights of stairs. An on-duty officer posted at a nearby intersection, heard the gunshots, and quickly ran towards the commotion. He saw the figure dashing from the apartment into the street and took off after him. The officer fired several rounds towards the figure, but the man escaped. It was thought that he was most likely shot, possibly in the arm, while fleeing the policeman. He was actually never captured, so we don't know his identity. During all of this, William denied the assistance of counsel and actually pled guilty on September 14, 1927. On September 19, 1927, William was charged with robbery and sentenced to 20 years of hard labor in the Idaho State Penitentiary by District Judge W.F. McNaughton. According to the prosecuting attorney, quote, Just before he left the courtroom, he turned and addressed the court in a threatening manner and said, I'll be back. You fellows will still be here, will ya? End quote. It's kind of ominous. Tom Searle actually pled not guilty and went to trial. And he had a wooden leg and had a pretty rough background, so he actually received a more lenient sentence. So... William's intake. Names, William Mahan, William Merrill, true name, William Denard, number 3821. Received at the Idaho State Penitentiary, September 24th, 1927. Crime, robbery. Born 1903 in Cando, North Dakota. So he's saying a year later than he was actually born. Residence, home, he was a floater. He was single. He said he was 24. His height was 5 foot 8 and 3 eighths inches. He weighed 156 and a half pounds. He had a regular build, black hair, brown eyes, a medium complexion. His occupation he listed as auto mechanic. His nose is described as Roman type, and he had a small cleft chin. He had a hairy chest and legs and eruption scars on his back and shoulders. And that could have just been the cursive that I was trying to translate, so could be some some form of scars on his back and shoulders. 
Uh, the intake forms filled in by the prosecuting attorney noted that Williams' headquarters were in Butte, Montana, and he had never lived in Idaho when the crime was committed. He also noted that Williams' associates were, quote, persons with serious criminal records, end quote. And he himself was a person with, quote, very serious criminal tendencies and a habitual criminal, end quote. The prosecutor noted his previous incarceration in the Deer Lodge prison in Montana and anticipated that he had a more extensive record than that. Williams Bertion showed burn scars on his inner right bicep, outer left bicep, and a mark on his left cheek. Warden Joseph Wheeler had a difficult time with William. He placed the retainer requests on William for the Washington robbery, and authorities from other areas sent in retainer requests. For new listeners, uh, that means if Idaho authorities decided to release William, they would release him to authorities in other states to serve out punishment for crimes he committed there. Warden Wheeler received a report from A.O. Anderson from Saskatchewan Provincial Police Rob Sart Detachment in February 1928, forwarded from the Chief of Police in Butte, Montana, J.J. Murphy, saying, quote, If you will remember this man, along with one Searle, was arrested by you during June last for bank robbery at Rathdrum. There has been rumors that this man tried to make his escape from the penitentiary by taking a high-powered car standing near, but that he was shot by the guards and killed. If this is correct, I would like to be advised as I am holding a warrant for this man's arrest. I might state that this warrant is about two years old, and in case he was killed, I will be able to close my files. I did not know just where the penitentiary was located, or I would have written direct, end quote. So Warden Wheeler responded that William was serving his sentence, had a retainer on him from Washington, quote, and I am pleased to say that we have this man safely held and working every day. His partner, Searle, is also here, end quote. A month later, A.O. Anderson wrote directly to Warden Wheeler and said that he heard about the escaped attempt over the radio and noted that they, quote, will not extradite as the charge is for theft of about 30 bushels of wheat. And by the time he has served his sentence, his present term, and then taken over by the Washington authorities and most likely get another sentence, he will be a lot older and should by that time be wiser, end quote. So some listeners may know that a bushel of wheat is equal to 60 pounds. So he stole 1,800 pounds of grain <laughs> in 1925. And these authorities were still like, you know, if, if you release him, if, if nobody else is going to take him, we'll take him. But if not, we'll, we'll get rid of that retainer. So in July 1928, you're, you're hearing this like, what is this escape? What is this thing that they're referring to? Well, that July... William, along with Mike Donnelly, who you might remember from last season as the partner of Noah Arnold, and Daryl Scoop Thurston, who I will definitely cover in a future season, plot an escape. For several weeks, the three men watched and waited for the perfect opportunity. The shirt factory was in full force with over 200 men, each making a dozen shirts a day. Warden Wheeler wrote in the 1927-1928 biennial report that despite many men entering the prison, quote, lazy and shiftless with a natural-born aversion to work in any form, end quote, after they started working in the shirt factory for some time, most of them, quote, became accustomed to work, end quote. The massive amount of shirts being produced meant material had to be brought in and taken out regularly from the prison yard. William, Mike Donnelly, and Daryl Thurston planned to steal one of the trucks and ram it through the gate. At this time, the Sally Port was actually the administration building where visitors actually come through to access the site here every day. The large blue Sally Port that we have now 
wasn't completed for about another five years. Unfortunately for the attempted escapees, guards were privy to the escape plan, most likely through a stool pigeon snitching on their plan. According to Warden Wheeler, quote, the original plan of the guards was to permit the prisoners to seize the truck and make the dash for the prison gate. Meanwhile, they were ready for them with machine guns located at strategic points, end quote. Oof. Yeah, this would have been a bloodbath, and the prison uh, may have been regarded as something much different if this plan had uh, been allowed. Instead of enacting this dangerous and deadly attempt to foil the escape, authorities decided it best to lock the plotters in solitary confinement. Warden Wheeler said that the discipline at the prison was excellent due to solitary confinement. Quote, the erection of the splendid punishment ward has done much to help the discipline in general. For when young, callow youths see their hero, the prison tough and bad man, placed in solitary confinement for a long period, the halo of heroism that surrounds him drops away, and the would-be tough find that his idol had feet of clay and is in everyday vagrant and bum. And this thought coming to his mind, coupled with the fear of suffering like fate, like his hero, makes for good order and wholesome influence, end quote. <laughs> After locking up the ringleaders, they conducted a shakedown on the prison grounds and discovered a collection of weapons, including a dagger meant to be secured to a pole, so basically a spear that was intended for the guard who worked on a balcony above where the prisoners worked in the shirt factory. <sighs> That's so scary. Yeah. Quote, so great was the tension among the guards that Dan Ackley, a veteran of the force, became ill when action was finally taken. Warden Wheeler was loud in praise of Ackley and, in fact, of all the guards, end quote. The tension must have been palpable. Warden Wheeler said that, quote, no more dangerous group of prisoners could have gotten together in this prison, end quote. He described all 10 men suspected in the attempt and gave full details on William, including his retainers at other prisons, and the threat to authorities after his conviction that, quote, I'll be back. You fellows will still be here, will ya? End quote. He described William as a tough element in the prison and a tough yeg. William spent much of his time in the prison in and out of punishment cells and hard boil. Unfortunately, his file doesn't list any exact dates and times for this. One write-up after his release noted that, quote, Once he succeeded in having a gun smuggled in over the wall and ditched near the dungeon in a trash can, a guard spotted it before the plot could be carried out, end quote. I tried to find any write-ups or details about this. I actually could not find this in any records. So, uh, I know I'm going to find it in like a week, but somehow William snuck a gun into the old pen here and hid it like for an escape attempt and luckily it was discovered before any any damage could be done when william was in a lockup he was making friends with other outlaws like a young man named Harmon whaley who entered the idaho state penitentiary at 20 years old with a sentence of from 1 to 15 years looming over his head while the two were locked up they built bonds teaching tricks of the trade boasting of scores and planning future scores it seems that around 1930, William started to behave and joined the rest of the prison population working in the shirt factory. He was ready to do his time and get out of the prison. On June 15, 1931, William wrote to the parole board and requested an interview, noting that he had served three years and ten months 
quote, and I feel that I have paid the penalty for the crime which I committed. And upon my release from here, I will be taken to the state of Washington to answer to the charge of bank robbery, end quote. His bid was denied on July 1st, 1931. Six months later, January 7th, 1932, his bid was once again denied. He tried in July 1932, and again that was denied. On December 15, 1932, William wrote a letter to the board noting that he had served five years and four months, quote, continuous time served with a good factory record of about three years. At this time, I fully realized the gravity of my mistake and considered it a costly lesson well learned. Previous to this trouble, I worked six years for one man as a blacksmith, and it is my desire to return to this work of a like nature in Alberta, Canada. As a matter of assistance in this regard, I have relatives in Lethbridge, Canada, who assume me of employment any necessary help in getting me started right there, end quote. And with that, the board decided to give William a chance. William's parole was set by Governor C. Ben Ross and Warden George Rudd on March 23, 1933, for a release on June 1, 1933. There is no record of him being transferred to Washington or any notes about the retainers being dropped against him. William was a free man. Harmon Whaley was released from the Idaho State Penitentiary the following September. Their tracks converged at the Idaho State Penitentiary, and they will be reunited in the future. William stayed out of trouble for the remainder of his life. Good episode. (laughs) Yeah, just joking. Okay, so six months after his release, William entered a garage in Tacoma, Washington, and held up the garage attendant. He robbed the man and then forced him to take the driver's seat and take the car across the 15th Street Bridge. Once on the other side, he forced the attendant out of the car and drove off. Days later, on December 20th, 1933, William drove up to the Eatonville State Bank at around 2 p.m. He had another partner who left the vehicle, revolver in hand, and marched into the bank while William waited in the stolen vehicle outside. A clerk was helping a local merchant and the armed thief told the two to load up the cash amounting to about $5,300 in currency into a sack. He then forced them into the bank vault before hopping into the getaway vehicle and speeding off. The clerk noted that the thief appeared to be shaking and complained that the sack of money was heavy. After they sped off, the clerk escaped from the vault and alerted authorities. A week later, the stolen vehicle was found near Silver Lake, seven miles northeast of Eatonville. It had several license plates. The two weren't captured for this crime. In February 1934, it was alleged that William returned to Boise and stopped by the prison farm, where he dropped off $300 and $1 bills to a fellow bank robber named Albert Reynolds. There's not a lot of documentation, but it might have just been like, hey, look at me. (laughs) Three months after the Eaton Bank robbery, on March 22, 1934, William waited outside the First National Bank of Commerce at Centralia, Washington. 23-year-old Reva Burdett was the first to arrive at the bank that morning to unlock the door. William rushed up to Reva with his gun drawn. He demanded that she unlock the door, but she didn't have the right keys. Upset, or possibly by accident, William or his partner fired a shot that barely missed Reva. The bullet passed through the front door of the bank. William then struck Reva over the head with the butt of the revolver, and the duo fled in a black sedan. Several passerbys alerted by the gunshot noted the black sedan speeding off and the two men wearing dark blue suits. They rushed to Reva's aid. Her head injury was bleeding profusely, and she was rushed to the hospital. 
Authorities brought mugshots of over 100 men and asked Riva to look for her assailant. She positively identified one man. Authorities did not furnish the man's name in Washington newspapers, but noted that, quote, this development in the case has put police officers in the Northwest on the trail of a dangerous criminal, end quote. Later articles in the Idaho Statesman noted that Riva, in fact, pointed out William Denard's mugshot. Around April and May 1934, William began concocting a plan to conduct a kidnapping and make the biggest score to date. He started surveying remote areas in the Northwest to find a place to hide his victim and demand a ransom. He literally began digging holes and covering them with wood and foliage, dungeons essentially out in the forest. He couldn't come up with a good plan and hadn't quite established his kidnapping team yet, so he put that off and decided to continue robbing banks. On May 23, 1934, William rolled up to the Klee Elam State Bank by himself wearing an obviously fake mustache. He left the car running outside as he entered the bank with a raised revolver and circled around the cashier's cage and forced his revolver into the cashier's ribs through a grating and demanded all the money to be put into a sack. After the cashier put around $4,000 in gold certificates and currency in the bag, a customer actually walked into the bank. William held the man up, and the two were ordered into the bank vault. William ran around the building and hopped into his running Model T Ford parked in the alley nearby. A service station attendant took note, and when he heard the burglar alarm going off within five minutes, he told officers what he had witnessed. Officers followed tracks and discovered a gun near the tracks of the car. Despite their quick response, William gained successful escape from authorities. He laid low that summer and winter. The following spring, March 19, 1935, he robbed the State Bank at North Bend, Washington around noon. He and a partner marched into the bank, which only had a single cashier at the time, armed with machine guns, and they took off with $500. Again, authorities were alerted, but no arrests were made. William always seemed to be one step ahead. In April 1935, Harmon Whaley and his new wife were strolling down the street in Salt Lake City, Utah, when they crossed paths with William Denard. This would change the course of their lives. The trio quickly began hatching up a plan to make their biggest score yet. William took the Whaleys up through Washington to explain his plan for a kidnapping and make a big score with a ransom. They couldn't decide who the family would be until May 1935 when the obituary of John Philip Weyerhaeuser Sr. hit the front page of the Tacoma Daily Ledger and the Tacoma News Tribune, along with several other newspapers across the country. John Sr. died suddenly after a bout of pneumonia on May 16, 1935. The newspapers detailed the history of the Weyerhaeuser Company and listed him as, quote, head of the greatest lumber corporation not only of the United States, but of the world, end quote. John had moved to Tacoma to head the company two decades before 1914 and expanded the lumber company and the Weyerhaeuser name to what we know it even to this day. The massive inheritance was destined for his son, the newly appointed executive president of the company, John Weyerhaeuser Jr., who happened to have four children. During May of that year, 900 striking employees walked off the Weyerhaeuser Sawmill and Timberworks, and at one point, 1,800 lumbermen had walked out. So with this many striking workers picketing and demanding better pay from the Weyerhaeuser company made for a massive list of potential suspects, 
if a Weyerhaeuser child were to go missing. Harmon and William must have been patting themselves on the back over such a perfect timing as the family is dealing with the grief of losing the patriarch of the family and adjusting to a new life, taking the reins of one of the largest timber businesses in the world who is battling unions. Harmon and William rushed to Tacoma, Washington, where the Weyerhaeuser family lived and got to work hatching their foolproof plan. It began with an 18-page letter of demands written on a typewriter demanding $200,000. The 21 demands included the demand for $200,000 in cash, including $100,000 in $20 bills, $50,000 in $10 bills, and $50,000 in $5 bills. All the bills had to be unmarked Federal Reserve notes. If the bills were tracked or marked in any way, the deal was off. No authorities, including police or private detectives, would allow to be notified. Otherwise, it would be off. The kidnapping had to be kept out of the newspapers. Quote, this is business. Be businesslike, end quote. The Weyerhausers had five days to come up with the money, and once it was collected, they were to advertise in the Seattle newspaper in the personal column with the note, quote, We are ready, signed Percy Minnie, end quote. The police were not allowed to catch them while collecting the money, or the deal was off. The cash had to have been in circulation, not newly printed. No gold certificate notes were allowed to be slipped into the bag and they would be notified where to go when the time came, and nobody better be following. Quote, we won't be sitting behind any mailboxes either, end quote. Number 19 of the 21 directives says, quote, just follow the rules, we will get along fine. Don't follow them, and it will be sorrowful for you, not for us, end quote. They then told the family that if they had any questions, to ask them through the personal column of the newspaper and sign them off as Percy Minnie. The 21st demand stated in all caps, quote, Remember to follow the rules, all of them. A slip on your part will be just too bad for someone else. We know what we are doing. We have it all planned. It has been all planned for three years. In the meantime, we have looked for places where we might slip and have found none. We are educated and pride says we are fairly intelligent. So if you just stop and reason for a minute, you'll see that it is best to follow our rules. We don't want to hurt anyone if we can get out of it. So if you just follow the rules as they are laying down by us, you will have the one you love back home in a week's time if you care about them. $200,000 worth. So just remember, a slip on your part is a slip by us. Don't do it. Signed, Egoist, Egoist. (laughs) (laughs) Quite the letter. Fascinating, yeah. I would be so scared if I got this letter. Like, it's so precise in some ways, but also seems so unintelligible and, and like, hapdash. Fairly it's, intelligent. It's the, like, bragging about themselves to me. Yeah. Like, a, like being like, we're educated. There is no foil in this plan. Yeah. We've thought it all through. You can't outsmart us. Like, <laughs> to me, that reads as someone who sort of hopes... Mm-hmm. That yeah. that the the people that they're addressing take seriously, but ultimately anyone I, I think could easily see through that ruse. Right. It's like they're trying to be intimidating, but it comes off as bluffing. Right, yeah. And they don't know who they're kidnapping yet. They've written this whole letter and they don't have the name of the person they're kidnapping. It's just like of the one that you care about, you know. Uh, yeah. It's just it's just interesting that they're like, okay, we're going to kidnap somebody. This is our note. 
now let's find out who it is, you know. Let's see who we can get. And they finally do on May 24th, 1935. Nine-year-old George Weyerhauser was released earlier than usual for lunch break from school. Instead of waiting outside the Annie Wright Seminary to meet his sister where they uh, would actually get picked up from their chauffeur, little uh, George decided he would walk home that day. At 11.50 a.m., William Denard and Harmon Whaley spotted George. William pulled up to George and asked, Hey, Sonny, can you tell me how to get to the stadium way? As George began to explain that he didn't know, William grabbed him and put a hand over his mouth. He was rushed to a nearby car and thrown in the back seat. He was blindfolded, and the two drove to a heavily wooded area near Issaquah, Washington, east of Seattle, and placed George in one of the underground dungeons. Yeah, so scary. The one that's dug in the earth? Exactly, yeah. So George was secured with a chain on one arm underground, and another chain was wrapped around his leg. He was given a few hard-boiled eggs and some cookies, and two lanterns were uh, lit above his head as he sat alone and frightened in this earthly dungeon. In later interviews... George would say, quote, the thing I remember about the hole was the smell of wet earth, end quote. And he he describes in detail, like being led, after they stop, after quite the drive, he's still blindfolded, and he's just being led towards water, and he was like, oh my gosh, they're going to drown me. Oof. Oh my gosh, I'm going to, they're going to, they're going to toss me in this creek and drown me. And then when he goes through the creek to this nearby dugout hole that has a wet muddy ground that he has to sit in wow and he is nine that is so young yeah oh so william actually kept watch while Harmon drove into town and mailed the ransom note it was too late as authorities had already been alerted about george's disappearance so (laughs) several of those like don't tell authorities the newspapers can't know well if this ransom note doesn't arrive until much later like it's too late everybody hears about this this boy going missing and now they know for sure that it's a kidnapping with a two hundred thousand dollar ransom attached to it a bed sheet was to be flapped on the backyard of the home to let the kidnappers know that the demands would be met john weyerhauser did this he put this white bed sheet on their back patio and then john weyerhauser also followed the requirement when the money was ready he published the note in the newspaper with the name percy Minnie. as the money exchange loomed investigators worked tirelessly to trace the criminals and bring them to justice searching on foot and from the air for any suspicious activity william picked up and moved to another hole near canniscat washington With the amount of coverage in newspapers across the country, they were beginning to worry their plan was actually going to crumble. On May 26th, two days after the kidnapping, they loaded George into the trunk of their old Ford and headed east. Passing through Spokane, they crossed into Idaho and stopped at Blanchard, an unincorporated city in Bonner County, where they took a quick nap while they changed George to a tree. They returned to Spokane on the 27th and uh, met up with Mrs. Margaret Whaley, who joined them in the house where they had written this note and come up with this plan. They brought the youngster in through the back door into the home and locked him in the closet. One of the trio always kept watch and slept outside the closet door to make sure George didn't try to escape. And he did say he did try it one time, but uh, he couldn't make it out. 
George would uh, later also tell authorities that he was afraid of William Denard, that he seemed, quote, the kind of man who would do anything if things went wrong, end quote. Harmon, on the other hand, was more likable, and George said he, quote, sort of felt sorry for him. He was nice enough, but very nervous, end quote. Hmm. So you get, you know, William, who's rough with them and Harmon who's just like okay you know as soon as William's gone he's like hey can I get you anything and he's trying to take care of him a second letter was sent to John Weyerhauser Jr. on May 29th telling him to check into the Ambassador Hotel in Seattle to set up the payoff William left Spokane alone and drove to Seattle to secure the money John was told to travel to the outskirts of Seattle along a remote road where he would drive until he spotted a white cloth held by two sticks on the side of the road once he saw the sticks, he had to follow the directions he found on a piece of paper, which led him further along another set of sticks waving on a white cloth on the side of the road. Unfortunately, he couldn't find the next note. He returned to his hotel. He received a phone call that evening telling him that he had failed, but to follow the trail of notes that led him to another remote road the next day. So... John did what he was told and left yet again with $200,000 in bills in the backseat of his car. He followed the tracks and came to a final note that said, quote, Leave your car here, dome light on, motor running. Leave money in the car and walk back towards Seattle. Go back home and keep your mouth shut for 30 hours. Egoist, egoist, end quote. John did as he was told as he made it about 100 yards away from the vehicle, a figure darted out of the woods and took off in the car. The ransom was paid. On May 30th, six days after the abduction, George was loaded back into the vehicle. He was driven back to Issaquah, Washington, near Seattle. On June 1st, 1935, a week after his abduction, at 3 in the morning, George was left on the side of the road. He wandered aimlessly through the woods for several hours. Finally, at daybreak, he stumbled upon a farmhouse. John Bonifus heard a knock at the door. When he opened it and saw the disheveled nine-year-old, George said, quote, I'm the little boy who was kidnapped, end quote. When Bonifus phoned the police, a Seattle news reporter named John Dreher was in the station and heard the report. But before police could arrive and respond, John arrived at the Bonifas' home and essentially abducted George again so that he could get the scoop on the kidnapping. And he was the first to publish an interview with this little boy as he drove him back to his family in Tacoma. So messed up. It That's oh, so immoral and so wrong on so many levels. Oh. It just is so, I think, reminiscent of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping but that was such a massive manhunt case, and unfortunately it ended in tragedy, but it just gripped the entire nation. It was certainly several years before this, but surely that is sort of in the back of, of their mind. I mean, there is no way anyone did not hear about, at least in the United States, didn't hear about that at the time. So I, I would be interested to know if that was any motivation, which I don't think we can know, but that's curious. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of parallels, even written in newspapers, talking and referring to the Lindbergh case and, you know, the potential tragedy that the nation is gripped and following. And they're seeing all these sweet photos of little nine-year-old George, like the, the chance that this is going to end with his death is like, yeah, it was a riveting story. Yeah, and so sensationalized. As I said, I had to pick and choose which documents that I even reference because there's so many 
written about this case. And William and, and the Whaley's, they only stuck around long enough to split the money evenly down the middle. William assumed the look of a hobo and literally hopped on a train back to Spokane with $100,000 in his pockets. Man, why would you go back? <laughs> Don't go back. <laughs> well, the Whaley's, they decided they were going to make a new life in Salt Lake City, Utah, where uh, they came across Mr. William Denard. On their way there, they used one of the bills at the railroad station at Huntington, Oregon. All of the bill numbers were traced. So the FBI had a directory of every serial number of every bill that was in that ransom. They didn't realize it, but William saw the headline in the newspaper while he was traveling, and he knew that the money was traced, and he attempted to get to the Whaley's before they spent any more cash. It was too late. When he arrived in Salt Lake, Mrs. Margaret Whaley was already under arrest after spending some of the cash in a store in downtown Salt Lake. Authorities waited patiently for Harmon to walk into the door before putting him under arrest. By the end of June 1935, a month after the kidnapping, Harmon was brought to trial and sentenced to 45 years in federal prison. He was originally sent to McNeil Island. His wife, Margaret, received a 20-year sentence at the federal detention farm in Milan, Michigan. A month after his conviction, Harmon was sent to Alcatraz on July 17, 1935. He was the longest serving prisoner on the rock. And please tune in this Saturday to hear about the time in Alcatraz with Park Ranger Matthew Connolly, uh, the head of the education department there at Alcatraz. It's a very cool story. Please do t- tune it's in. incredible. Yeah. And Harmon Whaley, like the, the end of his story is so fascinating. And I think it, it just adds another element to this whole thing. But yeah. yeah, I've been thinking about the ending throughout this entire story. It's oh. different hearing the story when you know how it concludes. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or at you least know, for those individuals. Yeah, but for, for William, it's a little different. Uh, so so these two, like, literally, right after getting this loot, they're caught within days because they're spending this traced money. After all this time and, and effort and everything else, like, they are instantly caught. And William just stays one step ahead it's just incredible that he's he's an intelligent enough criminal to know that like this is probably traced so william was public enemy number one you know j edgar hoover the fbi they were after him every person who had associated with william was arrested and interviewed by agents and they searched every inch of the country for him William actually relocated to Los Angeles, California, and assumed a new name, J.B. Barnes, and a new background. He was a printer from St. Louis, Missouri. He met a waitress, and he married her. He was trying to, like, create this new character, this new identity, and this new cover. He is living my dream, can I be honest? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Sky. (laughs) This there's gonna be a future podcast about you know Sky Cranny, <laughs> uh, and 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 the fact that I just moved to LA and make a new m- new life for myself. And the problem is, is I don't know how to find new interests. So I would just be myself under a different name. <laughs> you enroll into a doctorate program under you know. <laughs> 
some there would be like somehow some like article in the newspaper of like one of the biggest share fans and someone would be like i know who that is <laughs> <laughs> oh boy so you know they get married in in uh, la then they move to spokane that just happens to be his favorite place from spokane they moved to seattle and then they decide, you know, let's go to Kansas City, Missouri, and then Omaha, Nebraska, and then Cheyenne, Wyoming. Finally, they stop in Reno, Nevada. You know, I do think that they call that, like, America's most scenic parts. Oh, like, yeah. It's a regular honeymoon route. For sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, as Mr. and Mrs. Barnes, William is paranoid. He keeps moving from town to town. He's trying to hold this front with his wife, you know, that like, oh, I'm a printer. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a printer from St. Louis. I have to move for my job. And, you know, he can't spend any of this $100,000 because he knows it's going to be traced. So, Oof. you know, he's probably committing little petty crimes to pay for his life with his wife and hiding this whole background from her, which... Oh, boy. So, on April 29th, 1936, while living in Reno, he uh, tells his wife, you know, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go on a walk. I have to go to the post office and drop off some items. He happens to be the package as he skips town and he moves to Sacramento, California and never speaks to her again. Wow. Oh. Yeah. And while in Sacramento, I think he's just at his wit's end because he starts to try to change the serial numbers on these bills by hand. He's using a razor blade, a needle point. He's scratching at the bills numbers, trying to turn a seven into a one and, you know, a three into an eight and vice versa. And he's starting to spend the money and agents are starting to catch on to him. As William became more and more careless spending the trace money, authorities began to zero in. In February of 1936, another former Idaho Penitentiary resident, Edward Fliss, a.k.a. Frank Lane, number 4087, who has an equally fascinating story and may have accidentally kidnapped a very prominent Idahoan, was caught attempting to trade the marked bills at a bank in Seattle. In the Warden May episode at the beginning of the season, I mentioned Alvin Karpis, known as Creepy Karpis. He was officially public enemy number one, until May 1st, 1936, when he was captured hiding out in New Orleans. Not a single shot was fired, but this bumped William Denard up to the new number one position, and the walls were closing in. In San Francisco, not far from his old friend Harmon Whaley at Alcatraz, William was driving around in a stolen vehicle and using the marked bills. Agents were alerted and began interviewing clerks about the man who passed the checks. When one positively identified the mugshot of William Tenard and reported the license plate number of the vehicle the man drove off in, they finally had him within their grasp. The license plate on the Ford sedan was registered to Bert E. Cole, who was living at the Ventura Hotel. They searched for the vehicle and found it in a parking lot. Agents tampered with the engine so the vehicle wouldn't start and waited. At 9 a.m. on May 7, 1936, just under a year after the kidnapping, William entered the lot wearing a disguise. He got into the car, and when it didn't start, he popped the hood and went to tinker with the engine. A swarm of officers rose from their hiding places and put William under arrest. 
The only thing William could mutter was, quote, I've known for a long time it couldn't last, end quote. He was returned to Tacoma, where he drew a sentence of 60 years in federal prison. Hmm. July 18th, 1936, he is given 60 years for interstate commerce, transporting a kidnapped person. And a lot of that is due to his little pass over and across the border into Idaho. He arrived at McNeil Island on May 9, 1936, at the age of 34. On July 21, 1936, William was transferred to Levensworth. On September 19, 1936, he was transferred to the Federal Medical Center for Mentally Disturbed Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. I dug into the history of that prison, and it was originally built in 1900 on a plot of 620 acres of land. In 1930, it became a medical treatment center for federal prisoners, and construction on the first buildings were completed three years before William arrived in 1933. The 620 acres were utilized for farming projects, a program that ran until 1966, and in 1977, the land was returned to the city of Springfield. The hospital held Joseph Bonanno and Teflon Don, John Gotti, uh, the notorious mobsters. Gotti actually died at this prison in Springfield in 2002. So just kind of make that connection. After a stint at the center, William returned to Levensworth on March 6, 1939, where he remained until he transferred on July 8, 1939 to Alcatraz to join his old partner, Harmon Whaley. According to newspaper accounts, William was furious that he received a 60-year sentence while Harmon only received a 45-year sentence. He attempted to commit suicide at one point. He underwent countless psychiatric examinations and treatments. In spring 1941, he manufactured two muzzle-loaded pistols with copper tubing and other supplies, and he secreted away somewhere on the island. He wrote the letter to the warden stating that the guns are stashed away at the prison somewhere, and if you give me a pardon, I'll tell you where they are. What? Warren said, oh, sure, here you go, gave him a a ticket to the ferry, and William lived happily ever after. (laughs) No, of course not. The uh, warden saw through the ruse and found the zip guns, and he denied William's pardon, of course. There's a, you know, there's a level of, like, prison-made weaponry, you know, shanks, saps. We have lots of examples of them at the old pen. But then there's making a gun (laughs) on a prison island. Like, that takes a different level of smarts that I cannot comprehend. He can manage to get a lot of guns in prison. He did. I think it's because of the clout of his crime he could probably find enough people mm. that, you know, respected him as a yank. Because, you know, bank robbers, they were the celebrities in prison. They were the celebrities here. He was a tough guy, and everybody knew that he could bust into any vault and uh, make away with loot from any bank. So I, I think that that celebrity and clout within the criminal element probably afforded him the opportunity to, like, receive this contraband. Um, Mm. from the outside so that people would you know just to gain a little bit of that clout themselves that like yeah i gave him the you know the gunpowder this is not going to waste exactly yeah (laughs) so just that's my only thought though is that like it's that kind of gang criminal mentality of be on his good side yeah gain his favor he's a tough guy he's a, a heavy out here that if i give him this he's gonna scratch my back later with something pretty heavy because he's got that pull so yeah yeah that's my only guess though i don't know but uh 
you know, Harmon and William were on the island during the violent prison riot that resulted in several deaths at the prison on May 2nd, 1946. And, you know, we discussed that on the first episode of the season with Warden Raymond May, who's warden up at McNeil Island, who's brought back to Alcatraz, where he started his career, and he leads the Marines in, who actually lobbed the bombs into this cell house that kills many of these men who were rioting. It's just crazy, these connections. This season's been so cool. I love all the connections we've made throughout it. When the prison closed on March 21st, 1963, both men were among the last prisoners to leave the island for other federal prisons. Unfortunately, I don't have a date as to when William Denard was finally released from prison. I found that he applied for Social Security on December 7th, 1966. And everything else I know about his life after prison comes from his obituary. According to his obituary, William, quote, settled in Great Falls, Montana, where he worked construction on the missile projects, end quote. I was like, hmm. oh, my gosh. He doesn't know explosives. Are, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you heard that right. So William went to work helping with the construction of the 150 intercontinental ballistic missile silos in central Montana near the Malmstrom Air Force Base. Construction on these silos actually began in 1960, and by the late 60s, hundreds of Army Corps of Engineers, along with thousands of employees of the Morrison Knudsen, Boeing, and other associated construction workers, built these silos, these nuclear silos. Uh, Montana is actually home to one of three known major nuclear missile silo fields. And anyone who followed, you know, the Chinese spy balloon story earlier this year may remember that there's some talk that these balloons may have been flying over these key strategic nuclear facilities there at the Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana. I'm sorry, Anthony, what do you mean that the Chinese spying balloon incident was earlier this year? That was easily five years ago. Right. What are you talking about? It feels about? like it. It was like February of this year. What? I know. Yeah. All right. Right? Time time is not real any it's, longer. It's really not. Yeah. So I have no idea. How did he get this job? When did he leave federal prison? Was this his obituary? Maybe I'm incorrect with that, but it said, you know, everything was correct with his birth year and being raised in Kando uh, and moving to Canada early in his life. It also noted that he loved music and he loved to dance, like all this nice stuff that creates that humanity for these individuals. But William John Denard died of natural causes at his home in Great Falls, Montana, on September 19th, 1992. Wow. He was cremated, and it was wow. noted that a graveside service would be taking place up in Calgary, up in, in Canada. And with that, I've covered <laughs> as much as I could of the story of William John Denard and... I still feel like there's more to uncover throughout this whole thing, but I hope that if you tune in this weekend, you'll you'll get a nice uh, ending of Harmon Whaley. Wow, I that is amazing that he went on to work on like ballistic missiles. That's you know talk about a turnaround because I would imagine that is pretty high security clearance. Yeah, so like this huh. guy, he's like involved in prohibition crimes. 
He's involved in like gangster 1930s bank robberies. He serves at Alcatraz, you know, the most famous, hardest, most notorious federal prison. Serves at McNeil Island, across the country. And then during the Cold War, he serves in constructing silos to help protect us in the case of a nuclear war. Like, what? It's bananas. What kind of life is this? It's, that's a, he deserves a movie. That's nuts. <laughs> that would be fascinating for sure. That would be interesting. Yeah. So any filmmakers out there, if you're listening, do it. Yeah. <laughs> do, do, do it. Public, public enemy num, number one, part two. Yeah, part two. Oh my gosh. Oh, so thank you. Wow. wow. Amazing. We've, we've guests who come to the side a lot asking about famous residents. And I feel like Harmon and Denard are good examples because they're not just big names here, but big names in Alcatraz. Yeah. And like these were nationwide, like public enemy number one. Mm-hmm. Like these guys were gangsters committing very high profile kidnapping and causing nationwide sensationalized newspapers. That's incredible. That's, that's pretty big names as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Seriously. Guy, what do you have for us today? I'm covering number 6691, Minnie Jane Farr. So sources are her inmate file from Idaho State Archives, uh, newspapers.com records, ancestry.com records, the history page on rathdrum.org, a 2016 article, how an Irish pioneer named the town of Rathdrum, Idaho, after his village by Kate Hickey at irishcentral.com, the history section on the CDA tribe-nsn.gov, which is the Coeur d'Alene tribe official website, the Library of Congress scan of Rio Grande play, a, an article titled The History of Slot Machines and VGTs on prairiestategaming.com, and then the links and sources that I got from Wikipedia for Rathdrum, Coeur d'Alene, Coeur d'Alene War, and the Huckleberry. So our stories today actually have a pretty close connection, so we are going to talk quite a bit about Rathdrum today because Minnie Jane Farr was born in Rathdrum on December 3rd, 1886 to Hiram Farr and Margaret Walker Farr. Minnie was the youngest of four kids. She had older brother Solomon and Joseph and an older sister, Emily. Both of her parents were Irish immigrants from Belfast, and in fact, she was the only one of her siblings who was born in the United States. All the rest of her siblings had been born in Ireland. And the family immigrated to the United States in 1883 when Joseph, her closest sibling, was just two years old. And interestingly, they moved directly to Rathdrum. And so you may be wondering why in the world Irish immigrants would move to the tiny town of Rathdrum, Idaho. So when you brought up Rathdrum, I was like, oh, this is very fortuitous timing. So Rathdrum is located in the northern panhandle, about 12 miles northwest of Coeur d'Alene and about 25 miles east of Spokane, Washington. It was settled in 1861, and in fact, it's one of the oldest towns in northern Idaho. The area has had quite a history with several peoples blending together in the area in kind of a melting pot, especially in the 18th century. We have 
French fur traders, we have, of course, indigenous peoples, we have English settlers, lots of things going on here. The area that Rathdrum is currently in was originally the uh, land and ancestral homelands of the Coeur d'Alene tribe, though several other tribes, including the Kalispell, the Flathead, the Nez Perce, and the Palouse, likely moved in and out and through the area. In their native language, their name means those who were found here or the discovered people. They describe the modern Coeur d'Alene, they being the tribe themselves, describe the modern Coeur d'Alene tribes as, quote, the sum of uncounted centuries of untold generations, end quote, here from time immemorial. So historically, they occupied territory of 3.5 million acres in present-day northern Idaho, eastern Washington, and western Montana, making their camps along the Coeur d'Alene, St. Joe, Clark Fork, and Spokane rivers, as well as on the shores of Lake Coeur d'Alene, Lake Pend Oreille, and Hayden Lake. Uh, and as I've mentioned before on this podcast, Coeur d'Alene means Heart of Alls in French. This name was first recorded by the Lewis and Clark Expedition in 1805, but the peoples had been given the name by the French trappers with whom they traded because the tribe gained a reputation for shrewd trading practices. In the 1840s, a Belgian Jesuit missionary named Friar Pierre Jean de Smet was active in the area and converted many of the Coeur d'Alene tribal members to Roman Catholicism. In 1846, the U.S. acquired the territory in a treaty with Great Britain, and as a result, white settlers started coming to the area more and more frequently. So the Coeur d'Alene War of 1858 was a series of encounters between the United States Army and the allied tribes of the Coeur d'Alene, the Kalispell, the Spokane, the Palouse, and the Northern Paiute. The Coeur d'Alene War was ostensibly a campaign within the campaign of the Yakima War, which had begun in 1855, three years earlier. So we don't have a lot of time, unfortunately, to go into the Yakima War, but just know that it is a larger war going on between the Yakima peoples and the federal government. And in fact, if you want to know more about it, I'm going to plug another podcast here called Unsung History. And they actually have an episode on the Yakima War with guest Emily Washings, who is herself a Yakima Nation tribal member, but also a scholar of the Yakima War, Native Women, Traditional Knowledge, Resource Management, Fishing Rights, and Food Sovereignty. And for that episode, they also include some really great reading links and guides if you'd like to know more about the Acoma War. That's awesome. Thanks, Guy. Yeah. So the reason the Coeur d'Alene War starts is because Isaac Stevens, who's the territorial governor of the Washington Territory, had helped try to negotiate a treaty that he thought would end the Yakima War. So when he was elected to the Washington Territorial Delegate to Congress, he left the territory. And so many tribes who had not yet signed treaties feared that they would be left without rights to their ancestral lands and thus would be left with no protections against encroaching white settlers. And as is so often the case, the white settlers moving into the area to follow gold and mineral rushes caused problems with the tribes, at which time tribes began to fear military intervention from the government. So, on May 17, 1858, the tribes fought U.S. Army troops under Colonel Edward Steptoe in what has been colloquially called the Battle of Steptoe, with the tribes bringing the colonel's men, quote, within their last few rounds of ammunition, end quote, before slipping away under the cover of darkness, and historians consider this a victory for the tribes. The war was fought for another four months until September 1858 when a treaty was negotiated between the tribal nations and the U.S. government to bring about a peaceful resolution to the Coeur d'Alene War. Then, in 1873, President Ulysses S. Grant signed an executive order establishing the original boundaries of the Coeur d'Alene Indian Reservation, totaling somewhere between 500,000 and 600,000 acres. 
12 years later, in 1885, the tribe petitioned the government to make things right. So there were a series of successive acts. They eventually reduced the size of the reservation to about 345,000 acres. And that is about where it sits today. And the reservation's northern border is currently about 50 miles south of current-day Rathdrum. The city of Rathdrum itself was founded after a Pony Express relay station was established there. It was originally called Westwood after Charles Wesley Wood, a Pony Express writer, rancher, and land developer. So at the time, the area was part of the Washington Territory, and the postmaster of Westwood, whose name was Zach Lewis, received word from Washington Territorial Authorities he would have to find another name for his town because there was already a Westwood, Washington. So we turned to local resident Michael M. Cowley for any suggestions. And let me say that the info I have here on Michael Cowley comes from Kate Hickey's article on irishcentral.com. So Cowley was born in Ireland in 1841 and immigrated to the U.S. when he was just 15 years old. Over the next several years, he moved from New York City to Rochester, New York, and started west after hearing about the California gold rush. However, he ran out of money and had to stop in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. He finally made his way west after working as a teamster with the U.S. Army and was sent with an expedition to put down a Mormon rebellion in the Utah Territory. From there, he made his way to the mining regions of Idaho in 1862, but moved around mining camps of the Pacific Northwest for the next several years before finally settling down in Bonners Ferry, Idaho in 1867, where he operated a ferry and trading post. So then, in 1872... He moved his trading post to an area that was at the time known as Spokane Bridge, which is what explains why he's in this area of northern Idaho. So in 1881, he must have made friends with Zach Lewis, because in 1881, Zach Lewis asks him for potential names to replace Westwood. And one of the names that he suggested was Rathdrum, which is the place of his birth in Ireland. So the same year that Rathdrum became Rathdrum, it was named the county seat of Kootenai County. The next year, in 1882, the Northern Pacific Rail Line laid some line to transport silver from the Silver Valley to the mills in Spokane, and that also then allowed for more people to move into the area. Rathdrum suffered three major fires between 1884 and 1924, but many important historic buildings remain, including the Stanislaus Church, which is the oldest brick church in the state, built in 1901. Then in 1908, the county seat of Kootenai County was moved to Coeur d'Alene. And today, the railroad, now owned by BNSF, is one of the largest employers in the city. The population of Rathdrum has been growing steadily since the 1970s, and the 2019 estimated population was 9,150, up nearly 3,000 since the 2010 census. So, perhaps to someone from the outside, it might have seemed like Rathdrum might have maybe a sizable Irish population, perhaps explaining why Minnie's Irish family immigrated straight from Ireland to Rathdrum. But at the time of Minnie's birth, the population of Rathdrum was only about 200 people, meaning they were probably one of the first families in the area. Sadly, Minnie's father, Hiram, died on April 1st, 1894. I couldn't find any records or newspaper articles that detailed anything about his death. He was only 54 years old, and Minnie was just eight when he died. But even after her father's death, the family remained prominent in the community. And the family was so well-known in the area that throughout her youth, Minnie was mentioned in the newspaper for various all-good reasons while she grew up. 
For one example, in 1899, when she was 13, she won a sprinting race for the girls category at the 4th of July celebration in Rathdrum. That's super cute. Yeah, isn't that cute? And then in 1901, her name was mentioned in the newspaper for averaging 90 or above in all of her school subjects. And a year later, she gave a recitation on the Arbor Day exercise, where kids of school age meet together and they plant trees throughout the city. So according to an article in the Silver Blade newspaper from Rathdrum, the Arbor Day tradition started in Nebraska in 1874 because the plains needed some trees, and badly. The article continues on to say, quote, As the day was first observed by a prairie state, it was thought that the idea of planting trees would not extend to the timbered states, but such thoughts proved to be erroneous, as many states have adopted the plan where trees are plentiful. In some localities in Idaho, it would be perfectly reasonable for schoolchildren to pull up trees instead of planting them. Rathdrum is a happy medium between the two extremes, having both trees and prairie land, end quote. Then, in January 1905, the Silver Blade reported that Minnie, quote, has been teaching temporarily in the second primary room of the Rathroom School this week and gives imminent satisfaction, end quote. And this signals the beginning of Minnie's teaching career. In June, she got a certificate from the Rathroom School District to teach second grade, and she took a teaching job for the summer-slash-fall semester at Sunnyside School near Coeur d'Alene Lake. In December 1905, Minnie was part of the Rathdrum Dramatic Company, which put on a military drama called Rio Grande. Rio Grande was written by a man named Charles Townsend, published in 1891. The play was about army life in the West, but it was really more about domestic life during the war than a play about the war itself. And the main character, Senor Segura, is, quote, Spanish-American, rich as mud, and proud as Lucifer, end quote. Uh, I could not find any synopsis of this play. The whole copy of the play is available on the Library of Congress, but unfortunately I did not have time to read it, so please forgive me. And if you are interested, please feel free to look it up. The Silver Blade called the play, quote, one of the best plays which the company has put upon the local stage, end quote. And Minnie played Mrs. Biggs, the wife of Judge Biggs, and the author describes her as, quote, the judge's guiding star, end quote. And in the author's notes, at the very beginning of the play, he describes the character as, quote, the characteristic old woman. In this play, she should be fat, fair, and 50. Indeed, this character requires much vivacity in every scene, a fact which should be constantly borne in mind, end quote. And per the Silver Blade, Minnie, quote, proved a beautiful type of the old lady, conscious of the foibles of her lord, but patient and tactful in dealing with his blustering nature, end quote. So she was not 50, but she must have put on a great show. So she apparently enjoyed acting quite a bit, because in February 1906, she appeared in the local play of Queen Esther. This time, though, she played a much smaller role as one of the King's Maidens. She got another role again in September 1906, this time in a play called The King of Idaho. So here's the only thing I could find about this play, and it like, oh, it breaks my heart because I want to know what this play is about so bad. But this comes from a newspaper article in The Silver Blade. Quote, it is a melodrama with a strong plot, a vein of comedy, and full of a series of well-connected and lively scenes and incidents which held the attention of the audience throughout. The scene is laid in the Coeur d'Alene in the early days, and the characters, the surroundings, and the ever-present revolver suggested the early day mining camp. End quote. Most of that sounds like it just was a good play, but it's <laughs> it sounds the ever present revolver. I like was it like a murder mystery? I'm so curious. 
So, in the play Rio Grande, she played a character named Mrs. Biggs, but in The King of Idaho, Minnie plays a character named Mrs. Boggs. Um, (laughs) And Mrs. Boggs is the owner of the King of Idaho Hotel, and she, quote, figured in all the striking scenes and carried out her part in a most acceptable manner, end quote. In between these plays, Minnie continued to teach second grade in the Coeur d'Alene and Spokane area. In the summer of 1908, the Silver Blade reported that she had gone on vacation with Mr. and Mrs. H.L. Bradley and William Reinhardt. And I think William Reinhardt may have been a little bit of a boo thing. And I think Mr. and Mrs. H.L. Bradley were William's younger sister and brother-in-law. But interestingly, and this is very weird, according to several records, William's sister actually passed away in March 1908. But this was from the summer of 1908, and the newspaper very clearly says Mr. and Mrs. Bradley came with them, so I don't know what the situation is there. Interesting. Um, Regardless, this was a fruitful, pun intended, trip, because they brought back 116 quarts of canned huckleberries and 16 gallons of uncanned huckleberries. And for anyone who is not from the Pacific Northwest or the Intermountain West, huckleberries are local to the Pacific Coast in Oregon, British Columbia, Idaho, and Montana. They look like dark blueberries and... I put in my notes, have similar flavor to blueberries, except they're more delicious. <laughs> yeah, I could definitely go with, you know, 60 cans yeah. of those right now. <laughs> yes. If you're in this area, you can find like huckleberry anything you want, like huckleberry jam, ice cream, syrup, pancakes, candy, like find huckleberry things if you're ever in the area and you haven't because they are chef's kiss. Delicious. Serious. Huckleberries are really important to people who grew up in an area where they picked them as kids. Mm-hmm. Huckleberries are, are delicious and a big part of the culture and community. Yeah. Gosh, I love Huckleberry. So anyway, unlike the sweet berries they picked, the relationship between William and Minnie, if there ever was one, must have soured because William married someone else in May 1909. Many, meanwhile, took a teaching job at a school in Clagstone, just a few miles north of Rustrum, in September 1908. Two years later, she was teaching and living in Post Falls in Kootenai County. Her name was in the newspapers in May 1910 after the Post Falls drug company was burglarized and a $5 check, which many had cashed at the store, had been stolen. By 1911, she had moved up to teaching fourth grade at Post Falls, and most mentions of her from this point forward for the next several years for the next several years are about her life in Post Falls and the Coeur d'Alene area, including parties she attended, times she visited her family, home in Rathdrum, and trips she took with another close teacher friend, Jean Wenz. And she and Jean were very close friends. In fact, they even both got a job at a school near Fort Sherman in 1915. So I bet they were, were very close. And it's very rare that we find evidence of friendships, really, in these stories. So that was kind of interesting. Finally, the Spokesman Review announced on January 16, 1919, that Minnie had changed jobs. She had been hired as the deputy treasurer of Kootenai County. She moved from Rathdrum to Coeur d'Alene, because Coeur d'Alene, as we know, was the county seat, and she was well-suited for this job, and I think she enjoyed it very much. And in fact, after about a year and a half on the job, she actually saved the day for the county. On March 29, 1921, Coeur d'Alene City Hall and Courthouse caught on fire. According to the Spokesman Review, quote, a large amount of condemned walnuts was being burned in the furnace, and the heat caused the flue to burn out. A defect in the flue allowed the flames to escape, and the fire broke out in the attic directly over the courtroom on the third floor, end quote. 
Now, luckily, the fire department was housed on the first floor of the building, so they were able to get to the fire quickly and contain the fire, mostly to the upper floor. But while the fire department was doing their work, Minnie arrived, somehow got into the building, and ran into the treasurer's office. She managed to save the tax rolls, which were spread out on the desk, I think right below the courthouse, and put them into a presumably fireproof vault. The other records in the building did not fare as well. Hundreds of books in the library were damaged, courtroom records were damaged, and ironically, the fire department rooms were among the most damaged. The total damage was estimated between $10,000 and $25,000, which is between $166,000 and $415,000 today. But luckily, the building was fully covered by insurance. Then, for the next several years, she very competently did her job and minded her own business. In 1930, she was elected to the health committee of the local chapter of the Business and Professional Women's Club. And if you're a longtime listener of the show, you might have noticed how similar the story is starting to seem to Viola Lowe's story, who I covered in episode 59. These similarities will really only continue as the story goes on. So, unfortunately... Minnie's mother passed away at the age of 87 in 1932, and in 1935, Minnie's name was drawn to be able to choose a lot on the former Coeur d'Alene Country Club land right on the lake where she could build a summer cabin. Rent per lot of land was $10. Do you guys want to guess how much this is in 2023? $10 in 1935. 250 Okay. 170 <laughs> Sam, my, 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 $223.62. So she got a lot of land on which she could build a whole cabin on the lake for $223. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, that's so cool. There isn't any follow-up that I found on if she actually built it or not, but I hope she did because that would be amazing. So she was a member of the Coeur d'Alene Country Club because in 1938 she participated in a season-end golf tournament mixed two-ball foursome. And what that means is she was just on a team with a man, and they as a team were competing against another mixed couple, and so each couple had one ball, and together they would take turns hitting the ball. So first the man would hit it, and then the woman would hit it. She won a prize for this tournament, but it doesn't say what the prize was. On October 11th, 1941, the Spokesman Review reported that her car had been stolen and recovered a few days later. So she keeps having weird crimes kind of happen to her. Then, on January 8th, 1943, an article from the Spokane Chronicle titled Embezzlement Charged describes how John Stokes, an employee of the Central Motors Company, was charged with embezzlement. It goes on to say, quote, Mrs. Sue Langford, county recording clerk, and Mrs. Minnie J. Farr, deputy county treasurer, established a record among courthouse employees in 1942 when they were neither absent from duty nor late for work one day for the entire year. Miss Farr has been deputy county treasurer for 27 years, and Mrs. Langford has been recording clerk for 23 years, end quote. Eleven months later, on Friday, December 18, 1943, the Spokesman Review stated that Minnie had been reported missing after her friends had not seen her for several days. The next day, some more details came out about this potential disappearance in the Spokesman Review. Quote, An audit of the treasurer's books has been ordered by the county commissioners following discovery by the treasurer, Eric G. Osterberg, of apparent irregularities in the county tax receipts. The alleged discrepancies were discovered December 7th and immediately reported to the bonding company. Subsequently, Miss Minnie Farr, longtime deputy in the treasurer's office, was relieved of her duties and left town. End quote. 
She was found at a hotel in Spokane where she had been staying for a few days. Then a month later, on January 11th, 1944, the Spokesman Review reported the outcome of this audit, which explains why many had gone missing. Quote, Minnie J. Farr, chief deputy in the treasurer's office for more than 25 years, who was charged with embezzlement of $9,682 in county funds in a complaint filed this afternoon, waived preliminary hearing and her case was set for 11 a.m. tomorrow. Bond was set at $2,500. Full restitution of the alleged shortages was made late today. The alleged shortages cover tax collections paid to the treasurer's office, which were not spread on tax rolls, it was claimed, end quote. So when I originally found this 1943 article with the title Embezzlement Charged, I thought it was about her because her name came up in it. And so it was so odd that in this article about someone being charged with embezzlement, she just happened to be mentioned as someone like who just showed up to work every day. And then less than a year later, she is charged with that very crime. So because she immediately pleaded guilty, the very next day that she was arrested, she was sentenced to from one to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. It came out during the sentencing that she herself had assisted in the audit that revealed the short in the books that she herself was responsible for. She was taken to Boise and entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on January 17, 1944. So her intake form, Minnie Jane Farr. It says her true name is Mary Jane Farr. I don't think that's true. Crime embezzlement. Received January 17th. County Kootenai, born December 3rd, 1886. Height, 63 and a half inches. So she's about 5'3". Weight, 120. Build, small. Eyes, blue. Hair, blonde. Complexion, light. Occupation, accountant. When she entered the women's ward, she was just one of two women the other was Daisy Parsley, the 17-year-old quote-unquote bigamist who I covered in episode 6. Daisy was released a month and a half later, and suddenly Minnie was the only inmate. And she would be the only inmate for three months before she was joined by Rhoda T. Halford in June. Only days after she entered the penitentiary, on January 23, 1944, the Spokesman Review published an article titled Farmers Would Free Embezzler, Prison for Women Deemed Unfair Punishment, end quote. And it read, quote, in a resolution presented from the floor at an annual meeting of the Kootenai County Farmers Union this afternoon, it was voted by the members that while we do approve of punishment for violation of law, we do strongly resent and disapprove of such discrimination as was shown in sentencing Minnie Jane Farr to the penitentiary and request the governor or pardoning board to pardon or parole Miss Farr, end quote. Within days of her incarceration, Warden Sam Porch received a letter from James S. Hill, manager of the Desert Hotel in Coeur d'Alene, and Porch's good friend. And the letter reads, quote, Minnie is and has been a very close friend of Mrs. Hill and myself for many years. We feel very badly about her getting into trouble. She is not a criminal in any sense of the word. She, no doubt, has dissipated a tremendous amount of money over which she had supervision, but we feel after it is all over that she has gotten a rather tough break. All of the money has been replaced, and Mrs. Hill and I took care of her for three weeks while she was helping to audit the book, as we feel she saved the taxpayers here a goodly sum through her cooperating and trying to help after this thing broke. Of course, this may be a prejudiced opinion, but there are many others who are very high-class people and people of influence who feel exactly as Mrs. Hill and I do about it. She has been a very fine public servant. My main reason in writing you is that I felt possibly through our friendship, and I do hope you feel friendly towards us, that you would do anything you can to make Minnie's lot as easy as possible while she is in your care, and I'm sure you will do this. Incidentally, if you think of anything we could do to make things pleasanter for her while she is there, let us know without saying anything to her, end quote. 
and Warden Porch wrote back saying, quote, You would be glad to know that Miss Farr is already working with the women cooks in the guards' quarters. I think she is happy to have a useful duty instead of too much idle time on her hands. I think, too, that she is making a very satisfactory adjustment, end quote. So I think that just the guards' quarters, which at this time... In 36, they were in the house across the street from the front door. So there were hired cooks in there, but because she was the only woman in the women's ward, they allowed her to come and, and I think, do something useful with her time instead of sitting around this big, empty women's ward all by herself. I think it also shows that she herself is an extremely hard worker and willing to do whatever it takes to serve her time and serve it well. So, later that month, J. Ward Arney attorney from Coeur d'Alene wrote a letter to the Board of Pardons, which operated basically as a cover letter to a petition that came from the residents of Kootenai County asking for Minnie's release. And so this cover letter reads, quote, First, I do not represent Miss Farr, and I am acting gratuitously. Next, unlike many here who firmly believe that she was discriminated against as contrasted to four or five local cases where leniency was granted, I do not adversely criticize the judgment of the district court. The judge performed his difficult duty, and while I may have acted otherwise, I know the judgment to have been sincere. Factually, however, except in this instance, Minnie had had a blameless record and a very credible one. Every cent was restored to the county, and the bondsman lost nothing. Minnie was the victim of the attraction of gambling machines and retained no part of the money. Sincerely, I am confident that Minnie would discharge a trust in the future without wavering, that personally and publicly the lesson has been taught, and that pardon will reclaim. She is assured of an immediate position in home in Boise, and there would appear to be every reason to extend clemency to her. End quote. And this letter is actually the first time we get any sort of explanation as to what Minnie did with the money that she embezzled. But this is one of the only times that we see it. We don't have many of her own words, and she herself never publicly admitted what she did with the money. And so gambling machines refer to, I think, slot machines, which I did not know this. Did you know that they go as far back as 1894? Hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking of the, so, the arcades. Yeah, yeah, yes. Wow. The electromechanical slot machines that we know of, you know, weren't invented until 1963. So the machines she played on were probably pretty simple and much smaller compared to what we know today. You know, when we walk into our big grand casinos or even small slot machines at the gas stations in Nevada and stuff. So that's probably where she lost all that money. But it's interesting that she immediately paid it back. And so the petition that followed Arnie's letter reads, quote, The undersigned residents of Kootenai County, Idaho, respectfully and sincerely urge immediate executive clemency by parole for Miss Farr, and as soon as is consistent, issuance of pardon to her representing the following facts. And these are the facts that they laid out as reasons why she should be let go. First, Miss Farr served as deputy county treasurer for approximately 27 years, before which she taught in the public schools of this county for many years, and accepting for the embezzlement involved in this case merited an exceptionally fine reputation. Two, Miss Farr did not personally profit from the embezzled funds which were lost with her own money in gambling. Three, complete restitution of all funds has been made. Four, there is no chance, in our judgment, she will ever repeat this or commit any other law violation. Five, the imposition of the penitentiary sentence has served its purpose as a deterrent to others. And lastly, a reliable and responsible Boise businessman and his wife will employ and make home for Miss Farr immediately upon her release. And over 200 people signed this petition. But Minnie continued to quietly serve her time. She had absolutely nothing in her file to indicate she even stayed at the penitentiary. She just did her own number, did her own time. 
On October 1st, 1944, Minnie was granted a one-year conditional release, and she served eight months and 14 days of a one- to ten-year sentence. After this release slash parole, she was actually hired by the warden as an assistant identification clerk. She, quote, worked chiefly on compiling statistics, end quote, for the warden's biennial report for about two weeks. Huh. And the warden called her, quote, a conscientious worker, end quote. Wow, that's cool. That's super interesting. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So though both letters and the petition said that someone in Boise had a home and a job for her, I'm not exactly sure what she did during her conditional release. But I think, as can be expected, and as everyone promised, she behaved incredibly well on her conditional release, and on January 1st, 1945, Governor Charles C. Gossett signed a restoration of citizenship for many, meaning that she was given back all the rights that citizens normally lose when they enter prison, like especially the right to vote. She keeps a pretty low profile for the next several years after her release. She moved to Portland in about 1946, and she can be found there in the 1950 census. This makes me think she probably did stay close to Boise after her release, because Portland is much closer to Boise than Coeur d'Alene is, but I can't, obviously can't say for sure. Her occupation in the 1950 census is listed as, quote, caring for children in a private home, end quote. So maybe she was a nanny or something like that. Yeah. But she has a history of working with young kids. So this is obviously work she's very skilled in. The next I find of her comes from the Spokesman Review on October 4th, 1952, which reported that Minnie had passed away at a hospital in Portland after an illness she'd been suffering from for seven years. Her death record says she died from, quote, generalized carcinomatosis, end quote, which is really tragically where cancer cells from an original tumor begin to spread throughout the body to form many tumors. And this is usually a sign that the cancer is getting worse and cannot be cured. She was 65 years old at the time of her death. Her body was moved to Rathdrum, Idaho, and she is buried in the Pine Grove Cemetery, and she is buried in the same plot and shares a headstone with her older sister, Emily. And that is the story of our uh, number 6691, Minnie Jane Farr. That's a, actually kind of a sweet story. Um, yeah. Man, gambling is such a terrible addiction. Yes. And, and... It, it, anybody can like be consumed by that. And mm-hmm. I mean, this person who's a, an educator, she's like an elementary school teacher for years and years and like this very trusted individual gets mm-hmm. sucked in mm-hmm. by that that little risk reward that like little bump of mm-hmm. excitement when you win oh mm-hmm. that's heartbreaking yeah and like i said we only had sort of that one mention of it and so i don't know much more than that but it is really unfortunate but i, I do find it interesting she immediately made restitution so she had the money so i i, I couldn't put the pieces together to figure out like how she lost all this money gambling, but then was able to, like, give it all back. Unless, I guess, she lost it all little by little and then was able to save up to then pay it back. But I I just, I can't, I can't make that, I can't figure out that connection. Yeah, that's super interesting. Huh. This was a, this was a big one. Yeah, it was. Oh my gosh. And I'm I'm glad we have this, uh, this sort of last happier one, because if I recall... Our season finale is going to be um, pretty rough from both of us. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, be forewarned, listeners. 
Uh, next week is going to be um, some pretty heavy topics. Um, we'll be sure to uh, include some extra warnings. Uh, mine is about uh, crime against a child. So if you are particularly sensitive to that, I do highly recommend skipping at least my portion. So just uh, to know that that's coming from me. I'll be talking about execution and attempted suicide yeah. and murder. So it's, yeah. If you want to pretend that the season ended on a really lovely story about a woman who just got a little bit caught up in her vices, but who ultimately everyone stood up for and who did her number, did her time, I don't blame you and feel free. <laughs> That's right. But definitely tune in this Saturday for our Soul Pigeon yes. Saturday. Matthew Connolly is a fantastic tour guide storyteller he's a really brilliant guy and i'm i'm so happy that he got on zoom and spent the time with us to to tell mm -hmm. some amazing stories about harman mm -hmm. whaley and uh william denard and yeah yeah i think i think if i recall i i teared up a little bit when we when he told the story it was so um emotional it's actually another kind of sweet redemptive ending to uh, end the season on if you don't want to uh, get into the heaviness yeah next week absolutely all right everybody well thanks for for tuning in thanks for listening this far we really appreciate you do your own time do your own number we'll talk to you again next week Bye. Bye. if you enjoyed behind gray walls please rate review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. We have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.